0: I he's the only reason I'm there because he's very uh, liberty curious. Good, and he's he's a voracious reader of books, and this is mm-hmm. where like um, probably more people know about Hayek because of him than anything yeah. the rest of us have done. So yeah, I'm like that's a good thing. Father Sirico, welcome to the Death Star, Washington
1: D.C. <laughs> it's so good to be here. Are you Are you nervous every time you get near the Capitol like this? I break out in hives. I have um, this allergic reaction to bureaucracy. Yeah, so I, it's, uh, I don't know why I live here, but um, it's just a thing. My pot. Well, we need missionaries everywhere. My policy is uh, to come in and get out before I can catch anything I can't get cured.
0: Yeah. So. It's a little bit like Lord of the Rings. You, you can put the ring on, but you better take it off quick. Very quick. Um, so you are a man of many colors, yeah. if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you tell our audience, um, obviously we're going to talk about the Acton Institute, but,
1: but tell us what you're up to right now, because you've got a bunch of stuff going on. Well, I think like everybody else um, in the world, and particularly in our liberty movement, is we're trying to pivot to communicate the message now through other um, vehicles. And that has really opened a whole new area of potential and creativity. You have to think out time, uh, outside of time and space, in a sense. Our, our work is international. So when we do a conference, we have to think time zones as well. And then the whole thing that this is back in maybe February when we began realizing we needed to shift some of our programming because we have a huge program every year, a thousand people in Grand Rapids from all over the world. We we knew we'd have to shift. And then the whole notion of synchronicity and asynchronicity, this was a new word for me, asynchronicity, and how to present that message and the fact that the conference isn't just a four-day conference anymore, it's ongoing. People go on our website and Dive in the live portions of it. Obviously, aren't there? But so that's what we're doing. I'm I'm learning a lot about um, the opportunities here, but also the challenges present themselves in new forms. I mean, the response to the coronavirus, the the crisis, to allude to um, Higgs's book, Robert Higgs's book, Crisis and Leviathan, uh, has presented. New opportunities for the Leviathan, yeah. and new assumptions yeah. uh, on the part of the state, and new um, acquiescence on the part of the citizenry to capitulate. It's the, kind of it's to me it's
0: shocking as uh, as someone that that believes that there's there's something about liberty in our hearts, like everybody everybody's got that in us, but but the the um, poison, if you will, is fear, and the government has um, very ably—not just the government—I—I I call it much like there's a poverty industrial complex. I think there's a pandemic industrial complex. There's a network of of government agencies and NGOs and even private. Healthcare and pharmaceutical companies.
1: Well, but they're all swirling around the government, right? Yeah. The yeah. licensing or the funding or the you know all right. of that really kind of concentrates in in the state ultimately. Yeah, it's not just uh, competition among drug companies; it's bidding for licensing and yeah. copyrights and things like. Yeah, that. Yeah,
0: that that cronyism. It's just a natural state yeah. of of. Every good thing we try to do, and and certainly finding a solution to a pandemic is is a good thing that we need to do. Yeah, <laughs> but but it strikes me that um, they they need a they need a crisis, even if there isn't one. Yeah, and and I I worry about this, and and I've I've seen you uh, cite Robert Higgs before, but like I worry that we
1: don't get any of our liberty back yeah. after they stop helping us, or, or a little bit of it. I suppose uh, some of the things that we need to emphasize in in the midst of this whole thing is the way in which the first response was, in, in some instances, was to repeal regulations. Yeah. So like the uh, the fact that doctors and nurses couldn't cross state borders without, you know, they had to exempt people from that and exempt uh, the, the ability of distilleries to produce sanitizers and exempt... Uh, you know, the mask makers from certain government requirements, all of these kinds of things that pulled back. So there's that that's not been emphasized enough and how the discovery of the cure, whatever that's going to be, the vaccine or what have you, is going to come out of where all discovery comes out of, cooperative enterprise and competition, where people make mistakes and learn from other people's mistakes, that kind of thing.
0: I was uh, being the dork that I am, uh, very early on in the pandemic and the lockdowns, I immediately started thinking about Frederick Hayek um, and his his whole understanding. And I've seen you speak about this as well. His his whole understanding of the the spontaneous order right. and the process by which people figure out the radically uncertain right. and unknowable future. Yeah. And I'm like, if if we don't know anything about
1: this pandemic, why would we centralize everything right now? Right, the pretense to knowledge. Yeah, and that's really what they're saying, you know. Uh, except when you scratch the surface, you realize, well, we really don't know. I right. mean, this is this is really taken us all by surprise, and this is not just the flu. But on the other hand, some people experience it just like the flu, and yeah. and it's that pretense to knowledge that the state always acts and asserts itself and doesn't allow for alternative solutions, especially solutions on the more local levels. It's We're, very
0: dangerous that they pretend to know a lot more than they do right now. Yeah. but uh, Deadly, you might say. Yes. So I'm obsessed about this because we've all been locked down for too long, and, and I worry about the, the human consequences of that. Yes, yes. But I want to get back to something Uh, more positive. You're talking about, uh, Acton University adapting to this online, let's call it an opportunity. It's a necessity. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity. We're, we're having to reimagine how we do what we do, but that's, that's where good stuff comes from. In the
1: middle of the lockdown where, you know, we, we had to furlough some staff, uh, and we all took, um, cuts in pay. And I went off salary. Uh, in the midst of all of this, we began planning. And I just felt this surge of energy and creativity, not just myself, but on the part of our staff. We, we can do this thing. We've got this. And um, so I really do think when there are challenges, if you're entrepreneurial enough, you you discover alternatives. Uh, was Acton doing
0: conferences all over the world. I know that my, I don't think he's with you anymore, but my old friend Kishore was was, sure. was at the Vatican Their for a long time. Right. Um, but had you, had you had conferences all over the world? How did it work?
1: Yes, well, we've been 30 years. Um, so we, we came into existence right about the time of the collapse of uh, the Soviet empire and saw the opportunity to go. And uh, one of the first things I did with my colleague, Chris Mauer, who's the co-founder of the Institute, was uh, I bought a old trunk uh, and filled it with books, liberty books, you know, all kinds of things. And we just went through, I don't remember the order, but we went to Hungary and Poland and the Czech Republic, both Slovakia and the, the Czech Republic. Well, then it was Czechoslovakia. Uh, and just went through and we had some network of people. But then we kept meeting more people as we were there and all these people beginning to emerge. So that immediately oriented us to uh, the global situation and not just the domestic, um, certainly not the political situation. We, we've never been uh, partisan political. We're, I'm not interested... Well, I'm interested because it affects my, my life, but uh, our focus, our mission, has never been this city. Yeah, uh, Which is why we don't live here. and yeah. live in the middle of Grand Rapids where we don't have to worry about the next belch out of the Capitol.
0: Yeah, upstream of politics. Yeah, yeah. Where all things happen anyway. Um, At least the things that matter. It, it's fast, so like to that point,
1: we still have an office in Rome, by the way. We have an affiliate in Buenos Aires as well, and we keep getting requests from people throughout the developing world of wanting to start something like this. I think this new technological thing is going to enable us to do this in a way that we um, that would have been too costly and exhausting yeah. previously.
0: One of the one of the cool things about the democratization of technology, every time we produce a video we distribute it globally because the internet mm-hmm. is is global, but um, inevitably, someone reaches out to us from, say, the Republic of Georgia, and says, "I would like to translate this for you." Right, and we're like, "Please do."
1: Yeah, take it. No, we've had that happen to our materials. Uh, we didn't even know. Yeah, that uh, the act is one of our things. I think it was Poverty Inc. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, great documentary. documentary. Yeah, that was. Uh, that has been translated uh, without our knowledge or permission. Not that we. Care yeah. Because we're in existence exactly to spread the ideas. Yeah, the Slovak uh, Republic. We uh, our um, thing on entrepreneurship. Our documentary on entrepreneurship was required. Not that I was in favor of that. That it should be required. But it was put in all the high schools. Yeah, there.
0: So, and that's an opportunity, right? Right. Um, thinking about uh, taking a, um, a a trunk full of books in 1990, 1991. <laughs> And, and handing them out in the former Soviet bloc countries and now
1: just posting a video. Well, you know, and we had a conference uh, with uh, high-level religious leadership. I won't go into details because it's a discrete conference. Um, and what we did was we simply gave them iPads, which was useful for their own work, but yeah. it was loaded with our library, with our videos, with everything. And then when they would come year after year, we would just update them on what we had produced it was it just saved tons of money and yeah and back pain <laughs> in terms of carrying stuff
0: yeah there's there's almost a hayekian opportunity to mm-hmm. distribute information and right. knowledge right. in a completely unregulated and uncensored yeah. way well maybe and, not totally uncensored and, but and
1: then the challenge becomes how we communicate the ideas because it's not just data you know it's not just cold arguments but how do we communicate this effectively for people to grasp the vision of the importance of human liberty and the ultimate security that comes from human liberty
0: yeah and that's and that's a perfect segue to where i wanted to go because i am an economist i'm guilty of of bombarding people with theories and downward sloping demand curves and and words like praxeology which um i make fun of myself and i make fun of anyone else that that uses those words because they don't mean anything to people and the thing that you do um better than anybody i think and that maybe maybe that's too much but you're you're definitely one of the guys that knows how to translate complex ideas and values into a human story mm-hmm. you're a storyteller
1: I've read the Gospels, yes. <laughs> the, the parables. You know, I mean, and I'm and I'm a homilist. Yeah, I preach. Yeah, and when you when you preach and you have an audience of kids in front of you and older people and working class people and professors and the whole range, you have to come up with a way to get the point across that is accessible to everyone. And parables, stories are the way to do that. And then you can break them down later and show you know kind of put your footnotes in. Yeah. I tried to do that in my book, um, Defending the Free Market. It was, uh, It's not an academic book. I tried to write that book three or four times, and I kept following this academic model. And I said, no, I'm going to just, well, a friend of mine said, just preach. Just yeah. do what you do. Just let it, you know, and so I tried to do it through stories. Yeah.
0: Uh, my favorite story and, and a story that you tell when you introduce sort of your conversion to the, to the ideas of liberty and just, just how you have framed your life um, is a story about your your Jewish neighbor mm-hmm. growing up in Brooklyn. Yeah. Share so, sure that story Schneider. with us.
1: Uh, so I grew up on Coney Island Avenue, uh, which is a busy, it's not the, the beach, Coney Island, that's two miles down the Coney Island Avenue. Uh, and we were in a little apartment, probably as big as this studio. I'm sure I'm remembering it as being much bigger, but I think in reality it was probably as big as this. And uh, we had in the kitchen, it looked out into another apartment, which was identical to ours. And from my kitchen window, I could see Mrs. Schneider making some the a kind of Eastern European pastry. It's just delicious. Um, And as she was doing this on a spring day and rolling the thing and putting the cinnamon and the raisins and the nuts and everything out, and then putting it in her Wedgwood oven, I just became mesmerized watching her do this. And um, she's wearing a short-sleeve 1950s dress, and she was in and out of the Wedgwood oven. And she never said a word to me until the very end, at which point she looked up. She saw me kind of peeking over my windowsill. And she said, you'll come, I'll give you to eat. And so I scampered across. It was kind of an air vent uh, area where you could go across. you go up really to the the roof, which was what it was for. And she uh, placed a napkin on my hands and proceeded to put these rugola into the napkin, these warm, luscious, aromatic uh, pastries. And as she did so, I saw on her arm a series of blue tattooed numbers. At that point, I was about five years old. I had never seen that before, but then saw it subsequently, because once I saw it, I became much more aware. And this is the 1950s, Brooklyn, so a lot of the refugees had come, and many of my friends' uh, parents had had, uh, survived the Holocaust. And when I got back into my kitchen and hid my treasures from my siblings um, my mom came in and I I said Mrs. Schneider give me these and I said, but why does mrs. Schneider and I you know I don't really remember this but my impression of the memory is that I whispered it for some reason why does mrs. Schneider have tattooed numbers on her arm and my mother proceeded to explain by use of an analogy and she said you know when you watch the cowboy movies and they capture a calf. What do they do with it? I said, well, they tie it up and then they brand it. And she said, why do they brand the calf? And I said, so that all the other cowboys know who owns that calf. And my mother said, that's what some people did to Mr. and Mrs. Schneider. And right there, it just set the whole, I don't know how different a person I would be if that didn't happen, you know. If if that it put glasses on me in a way that I saw everything else from that point on about human dignity, human freedom, the fact that nobody has the right to own another person like they own an animal. And the interesting thing about it is, my mother didn't explain this to me philosophically or theologically or anthropologically. She just told me this story. What that tells me now, having read all of these disciplines, is that encoded in the human reality, I would say the natural law, is a moral sensibility that the the is of our existence implies the ought of our existence. And that's just changed the way I looked. Now, for a number of years, that moral imperative that that belief in justice and human dignity manifested itself in my commitment to uh, political movements that I see from my perspective now as antithetical. But I know, and this is why I kind of have sympathy for a number of these young people who are protesting uh, various things, I know I want to believe in the sincerity of many of them, Yeah, uh, maybe even the majority of them uh but how um unfocused they are on the the true meaning of the yeah. whole thing or at least how to build the institutions that guarantee uh the rights of human beings
0: what i what i love about that about that story and and i've heard you say this before that that your mom was a moral philosopher <laughs> and and i would uh i would universalize that rule and say that all moms i think so are moral yeah. philosophers and and one of the jokes i um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. Mm-hmm. And the joke at the time was I stole that from your mom. <laughs> and I think it's almost universally true that every mom told every son and daughter, um, you know, stop fighting with your brother, um, right. don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And, and my attempt was to translate Adam Smith's entire 700 pages of the theory of moral sentiments into a tweet. Um, but, <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> but it's it's very much a a this this bottom up way that that moms teach us how to be better people. I yeah. think is I think is in, important. Um, but as you referenced, and and we need to we need to get into your former socialist closet here mm-hmm. and let people know that 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 sense of injustice drove you to. Kind of a Marxist period.
1: Yeah, it did. I was a soft Marxist. I wasn't an orthodox Marxist. Um, but this is the '60s and the '70s, so that's what we're surrounded with. Uh, you didn't have a chance, yeah, I guess. And I'm a New Yorker too, so yeah. you know, I, I really didn't have a chance. Although I had been inoculated. Earlier in my life, I'll I'll come to that, uh, on why I was open to seeing things a little differently. But I was caught up in the activism of the period. It was the anti-war movement, it was the beginnings of the gay movement, the feminist movement, the, in California, I had moved to California by this time, the uh, farm workers movement, uh, boycott of, uh, so unions, boycott of grapes that were non-union. And I was involved in all of this uh, quite intensely and I remember once and the reason I say I was a soft Marxist because I had real Marxist friends I mean disciplined Trotskyites and and the like and I remember one day we were sitting around after some demonstrations and uh, we were talking about when the revolution comes what's what we're we going to have what are we going to see and everybody had talked about equality and justice and liberty and, you know, and all this. And I said, when the revolution comes, we'll all shop at Gucci's. And everything stood still in the room, including the smoke. And I won't say what kind of smoke it was. Uh, and my friend... We, we know what kind of smoke <laughs> <yes>. it was. <laughs> my friend, who is sitting next to me, she's um, a Trotskyite, a serious Trotskyite, uh, turned to me and she said, Gucci's? Uh, and I said, it's a metaphor. We, we're all working for a world where we can have access to quality goods and services just like the rich. She said, Gucci? And she said, I don't think you're a socialist. You're so bourgeois. And I realized at that moment that not, nothing is so uncomfortable than having somebody tell you something they know about you that you don't yet know about yourself. Yeah. And she saw right through... And a while after that, somebody gave me some books to read uh, on economics, not on religion, but just on economics—Hayek and Bastiat and Mises and and Friedman and the like—and I began reading through them, and like the light slowly went on in the room. You know, I could see all this furniture I had been bumping into over the years. Now I knew where it was. I I understood the relationship of things to other things. And um, then I had to work my way back to the inoculation, which was the, the nuns in Brooklyn who taught me catechism. And it wasn't so much what they taught, but the way of thinking, logic, reason, a sense of transcendence a sense of a goal of a life and the meaning of life. And I just began to put these things together and returned to my faith, which I was away from at that time. Uh, Then had this call to the priesthood. And then when I get into seminary, I see they're all, this is now the 80s, uh, they're all enamored of liberation theology, which was the same stuff, but now baptized. You know, that I had left on the streets of California. What was,
0: uh, was there a particular book that, um,
1: where you felt like the light went on? I suppose uh, if I had to point to one book, I I suppose it was The Law by Bastiat, which is such a simple little book. I mean, a a high school student could read it, Uh, but it really reveals some things about. What fraternity is because yeah. he keeps using this phrase "fraternita," yeah, uh, and and legislation versus looting, yeah, you know those kinds of things that are really rooted in, again, logic and the natural law, and that just, as I say, it opened up a whole new way of conceiving social order,
0: yeah. I, I hear a lot of Bastiat, and in, in the story that you tell, um, and simplify everything down. We we basically have two choices when it comes to how we organize society: we can cooperate, yeah, or we can use force to take other people's stuff. Right. right. That that seems right out of Bastiat.
1: Yeah. No. No. It really is, and and it's right out of human reality, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we need regulations. We need order, but the question is, what is the source of that regulation? What is the source of that order? It can be, in other words, we need things that can cons- conscribe our behavior, that constrict us. So, because if we do everything we want to do, and this is the false notion of of, of liberty that, that uh, the left is engaged in, that the 60s introduced, I need to experience everything uh, I have a passion about. If you do that, then you have Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. you know. And so the question is not should our behavior be constricted, uh, but how should that be constricted? By what means? So um, I'm fond of citing the sociologist, Robert Nesbitt, who makes a distinction between power and authority. He says both are forms of constraint, but power is a form of constraint that's external to the person, law, police. Authority is something interior. It's when you constrict your behavior because of certain norms or morals or traditions or beliefs that you have. It could be something as simple as etiquette. Uh, you know, you, you constrict your behavior, you take your hat off uh, indoors. Well, they don't do that much anymore, but. Uh, or you, you um, uh, let someone go through the door before you, that, that kind of thing. And you, you conform your behavior, you don't do something that you want to do because there's an authority. As opposed to, and our society—it's—it's it's really easy to kind of just force people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way,
0: there seems to be a there's there's that that battle within every human, and there seems to be that that inner authoritarian that wants to just tell everyone else how to do it. Right. And and I'm thinking about uh, a recent guest on our show, um, uh, Nobel laureate Vernon Smith. Yes. Um, he. A great man. He he's a great man, and he's he's tried to um, formalize. And I and I say that normally I don't like that word as an Austrian economist, but he's he's tried to essentially model Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments mm-hmm. through his his uh, experiments and games, and the the entire basis of his work, which we talked about, was discovering that there is a natural regulation of human behavior that that emerges because people actually care about the judgment of their neighbor right and and that that, that may be more more Hayek than the Nesbit but it, it, it gets at that yeah. the difference between government which is telling people what right. to do and governance exactly um, and I think you're right the uh, libertarians sort of lean on in, into the caricature. Mm-hmm. But there's this, there's, there's this beautiful story to tell about how fr- free people do sort of figure out rules of conduct. And
1: Well, if I may introduce just, another please. parable. <laughs> um, I saw that coming. <laughs> well, it, it was in Brooklyn, we play stickball. Yeah. Uh, at least we did when we were kids. And it's baseball, but resituated for narrow streets. And we used to just, you know, 14, 15 kids playing it or watching the game and um, uh, and we'd make a cacophony uh, you know on the street and yelling at one another and stuff and the lady another Jewish neighbor would come out this is in a different location in Brooklyn where I lived because we had a street we could play on uh, would come out and watch us play Um And if we got a little too exuberant or used some expletives and stuff, all she had to do was call one of our names, and it calmed the whole thing. Now, if you went to that neighborhood, I suppose, in Brooklyn now, and you had 14 kids uh, jazzing it up or whatever, nobody's going to come out on the porch and call your name because you might get shot. Uh, and in order to bring that whole thing into order, you'd have to have several squad cars. Yeah, that's the point about governance and government. Yeah, we could be governed by this little Jewish lady who's a little nosy, you know, and, and intruding herself. And also the whole rules of the um, the game. You know, uh, you would always try and get away with something, you know, but uh, other people watching you or. Or Uncle Vinny on the porch, seeing you know that's not the way we play this game and uh, cooperation. Because if you don't have the rules, you don't have the game. Yeah. So those are, are needed things, but it's come to the point now we have to have policemen uh, governing our streets rather than neighbors. I I definitely want to get back to um, the
0: the. So-called democratic socialism that young people are flirting with, particularly given your <clears> your own your own uh, dalliance with socialism as a as a young man. But right. um, you you point to something that I that I have to bring up. Uh, your yeah, the Acton Institute is is downtown Grand Rapids. Yeah. And during the riots um, after the killing of George Floyd. Um, you were right in the middle of that. Right.
1: Yeah, Kim, we're just across the adjacent to the police station uh, so when the marchers came down to protest at the police station they kept going up the street and hit um, there's a clothing store on one corner they looted uh, and then we have a, a kind of Mexican restaurant right across from our parking lot and they busted the windows and they, they tried to do that with us. We have uh, bulletproof windows, which we put in intentionally because we thought years ago when we were doing this that we could be the target of people. So the planters they threw at the windows bounced back. Yeah. you know, thank goodness. But you know what happened the next day in Grand Rapids this is very interesting. Um, the The next day was a, a, a Sunday morning, and I went to that area. We've, Three or four police cars burned on the street just down from us, and I drove through that whole area and what I saw stunned me there were all these people out cleaning up. I don't know how they knew I think on Facebook people church groups people brought coffee they brought pizza they brought buns they they were scrubbing the thing wiping down the graffiti, bordering up the the stores and it was just a spontaneous response to this from on the part of the people in grand rapids she said this doesn't represent our culture and our community and i think for a lot of the the people who were protesting george floyd's death which needed to be protested and and all of these kinds of actions against african americans in particular in this country we have a history of this anyone who says no 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 everything you know that's just not true. I mean, I know if you know black people, you particularly black guy trying to get a cab on the street. For most of those people, they they were reacting to what I reacted in seeing Mrs. Schneider's tattoos. Yeah. The problem is, you have some people around that, and it doesn't take a lot to throw the first brick, and then everybody is in chaos. Yeah,
0: the. Uh your neighbor's tattoos and the killing of George Floyd should be a teachable moment yeah. about the horrible abuses of unchecked government power. Right. Um, I don't know that that's what's happening with um, tragically. I I don't I don't know that that's what's happening with um, uh, the protesters, Black Lives Matter, yeah. all of this. I'm I'm afraid that the the violence is actually empowering the same forces. That led to that crisis I, I, in the first yeah, place. Yeah, I
1: think what's happening now is um, they are formalizing and ideolo- ideologizing, if that's a word. Uh, it is now the response to to the the injustice against people, and and unfortunately, they're they're taking a page out of the handbook of their oppressors. Yeah. They're gonna just do, and you know, history is replete with examples of of this kind of thing, rebelling against the monarchy in France because of its injustice and then creating a terror that was every bit as bad or worse than.
0: Yeah, I always, uh, I, I see professionals who are, have uh, very much said that they're sort of
1: explicitly Marxist. And yes, they, they, Black they, Lives yeah. Matter as an organization is that. Yeah. You know, a great slogan right you know because who can disagree with that you know of course black lives matter but the organization is putting this in a very ideological framework which is take them right out of marx right out of engels and like starting with
0: marx the one of the one of the core parts of marxism is is violence is part of the process by which we get from late stage mm-hmm. capitalism to this supposedly beautiful world of communism, wither, withering away of the state. Yeah. But I, I I draw a bright line between those those professional agitators yeah. and people that are demanding righteously demanding justice yeah. for um, wrongdoings. But and I think it's um, I see too many conservatives fall into this this us versus them sort of trap where yeah you have to choose between black lives mattering and blue lives mattering and it's like
1: right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's exactly, you, you know, the Marxist taxonomy that has uh, captivated people's mindset for a hundred and something years now is predicated on this division, class warfare, class struggle, that somebody benefits only at the expense of somebody else it's divisive and if I may for a moment be theological uh, people may not realize that the the devil the the name devil the title devil is the divider he is the one who um, dissembles you know he takes things apart uh, rather than the order and the creation that God does you know brings things together and so when they are um, operating on this notion of violence and uh, struggle, class struggle, rather than cooperation and encounter, uh, I think you have a very destructive but exhilarating element that is introduced into the social fabric. And I think we're going through a period of that. There's a lot of exhilaration. What we need to do is somehow communicate to, to well-intentioned people uh, what the alternative is? What the real, concrete alternative is? Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about well-intentioned
0: people. And I sometimes I get in trouble because I I interpret very sympathetically a lot of the things that I hear coming from someone like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and I use her as a proxy for an entire movement of young people who are <clears throat> flirting with with democratic socialism. Right. Um, and it's not about her, it's about, it's about the millions of people that think that they agree with her. Yeah. Um, she talks a lot about dignity, economic dignity, and that's a word that you use a lot as well.
1: Yeah. How do we get dignity? Well, first off, we have it, <laughs> you know, by our nature. Nobody gives us dignity. Any more than people giving us our rights, the state doesn't give us our rights, right? The family doesn't give us our rights. Our neighbors don't give us dignity. They can insult our dignity. They can take away our rights and violate them. Um, So I think you begin with that anthropology, that, that notion. And when you have this sense that I am a being of dignity, of infinite worth, there's also a creative dimension to that. Is that that you you want to see and relate and bring things together and build? I think all of that are are the um, kind of the rudiments of the free society, of the creative society, of of what later on you know somebody like a uh, Hayek will will talk about uh, in terms of dis- the discovery process, entrepreneurship, and all the rest of it. I think when Ocasio-Cortez speaks about dignity. It's something that, um, and I may be wrong here, uh, but it's something that is conferred upon us by society. And I think that's very dangerous because the society that can confer dignity and rights is the society that can remove it as well. So uh, I think it's a different anthropology really operative.
0: Yeah, She, she seems to believe um, and, and she talks, uh, um, and she is prone to saying things that I would find outrageous as someone that understands how markets work, but she, she yeah, thinks she's, that.
1: She's, she's exuberant. She yeah. doesn't think very deeply yeah. uh, about this. But she, her intentions seem yeah. to want to help people. Oh.
0: Yeah, and this, you know, one of the, one of the phrases um, that um, democratic socialists will use is slave wages and the, the very idea of working for her, she actually suggested right. during the lockdowns that it would be undignified for um, people waiting tables and baristas and, and right. people earning wages to actually have to go back to those jobs. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, of course I'm wondering to myself, well where are they gonna go? Right. But, but obviously she wants the government to pick up that responsibility and seems to think that you can legislate dignity you could pass a bill exactly you could uh, uh pass a universal basic income that would give people dignity right and i i think that's that's more scary i think than than the other consequences of central planning because i feel like um the the dignity in each one of us and and, and i'm going to test this theory on you because you can correct me um we have to work for that we have to struggle a little bit. We have to take responsibility. Yeah. Uh, we have to sweat a little bit. Um, right. To me, that's where that fulfillment
1: in life comes from. And I don't think she gets that at all. Yeah, as though you could package it and as though it's just a material thing. You know, it's just the the size of the paycheck or yeah. the, the the physical things that you accumulate. I mean, this it's the In a way, it's as uh, materialistic as the um, stereotype of the rich capitalist who wants to collect baubles. Um, It doesn't look at the person and the things that are uh, necessary for human betterment and for human flourishing in the full sense of that word. Um, That a person can have dignity doing doing things that um, might otherwise seen as reprehensible. There's a story about Mother Teresa. She was being interviewed by a well-coiffed journalist who came to, and Mother Teresa said, "Well, we can we can do the interview, but first I have to do some work." And so she's kneeling by the bedside of this guy who's dying, and she's cleaning pus from his wounds, and she tells the woman, "Hold the bucket." And the woman is there holding the bucket, and she's cleaning, you know, and they're done and they walk over to this uh, sink and mother teresa's washing up and the journalist just looked at her and she said i wouldn't do that for a million bucks and mother teresa said neither would i <laughs> you know it, yeah. it, it really calls us to think this man had dignity in his circumstance yeah you know and, and it is as you say it's uh, the struggle is part of i mean that's even physically it's working physically exercising you know it's unpleasant it seems like it's destructive and in a way it is but then it builds back muscle this kind of thing uh, and and even psychologically the um acceptance of reality about ourselves is a very uncomfortable thing to undergo and um I, I think all of that is missed in this kind of materialist universe that's just uh, or presumption mindset that's just focused on on the material Bo- on both sides of this question uh, on the left and and on the right. Yeah.
0: So and you, you're you're scratching at that, but I'll ask directly: um, What do you think the um I hate to say pitch because I don't think it's a sales pitch, but what is, the, what is the alternative for young people that, that believe um, AOC when she says that the government can give you dignity but, but markets are undignifying? Well, how, know, how do we make that moral case?
1: Another one of the phrases that the left uses that I thought is just so obvious that the way in which they want to go about achieving this is not through the state. But the phrase they use is, we want people to have self-determination. We want people to have, to determine what they want to do in life. And if that is not liberty, I don't know what liberty is. You're not going to get self-determination by being told where you can work, what you can do, how you can dress in a given circumstance. and all of these, the regulatory society, the, the society gives us licensure to do all of these things, if they could come to see that that there's a moral imperative that we do have the right to self-determination. Uh, and, and part of that self-determination, when allowed to play itself out, uh, becomes cooperation with other people, precisely to achieve the flourishing that we need, because we can't do it alone. We're not atomistic individualists. You know, that's true. We are social beings. Uh, That's the reality of who we are. But there's this tension between communist man and um, Ayn Rand's radical individualist. And it's to recognize that we are social beings who need other people for our betterment, Um, and the best way to uh, achieve that is to encounter them rather than just to see it as a conflict.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm thinking back to the documentary you referenced, Poverty, Inc., and the supposed good intentions of this this massive global infrastructure of of Mm -hmm. do-gooders that really want to tell other people how to live their lives. Right. And and underlying that entire documentary is that um, we need to free people up so that they can live that that self-determined, dignified life. Right. You may have actually used
1: those words in that documentary. I don't remember. Probably but. a few times. the The philosophical way of expressing it is to say that that uh, the person has to be his own subject. He can't just be the object of other people's pity or charity or you know that. that the way in which this needs to happen is that, that people need to take their freedom to, to build up society.
0: Yeah. So I have to ask, um, the uh, your, your gateway was uh, Frederick Bastiat, The Law. Um, Among others, yeah. My gateway, which I've said a thousand times, was a Rush album called 2112 which is dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand.
1: Oh yes, yeah, I think I did hear that. Yeah. yeah.
0: And um, it's actually the the entire first side of that album is basically lifted directly from the little novelette Anthem. Anthem. That's
1: right. Yeah. Yes. So
0: Anthem was and I and I sort of stumbled across these things because back then you couldn't google it or anything else. Um, is there and I know you've talked about this is there common ground between people that are sort of enthused by that Ayn Rand individualism, and, and your perspective as a man of faith.
1: Yes, um, I wrote a, an article on this some, some years ago. It was called, Who, is John, Who Really Is John Galt? Um, and uh, you know, I make very clear that Rand was an evangelical atheist. <laughs> and, and I think in many respects a rather unhappy person. But boy, could she tell a story. And the story that she's telling in the broad sense, at least through the lens of Atlas Shrugged, uh, is the story of redemption. uh, The search for that one great perfect man uh, who will accumulate around him a faithful bride or associates. Uh, who will come to the world and be hated by the world and even to the point of being um, uh, persecuted and have five wounds imposed upon his body. And even in the process of that, the persecutors can't do it. And they need his help to do it. They need, in, in a way, you know, his, uh, his knowledge of how things work to do it. And then for that perfect man... Uh, to take his flock out from the system as it's collapsing and pronounce a benediction over it at the end this is all Rand but this is all the gospel yeah uh, and I think what she does Saint Augustine has a phrase uh, in a lot of Saint Augustine's uh, theology is to say that we know God here and work out this is why he he speaks oh he speaks about the... Uh, beauty ever ancient ever new ever ancient ever new i'm i'm discovering this as i'm moving towards you but i was looking in all the wrong places and one way of saying that is that for saint augustine even the man knocking at the brothel door is seeking god he's seeking eternity he's seeking the good he's looking in the wrong place and i think that's the thing with rand um, and I've been criticized for saying that as a priest. How can you say anything good about Rand? No, I think she was, uh, I think her philosophy is inadequate. Uh, it is, but it's very um, derivative in a lot of respects. She's pulling some Aristotle, and I think the iconography of the Russia that she grew up in is apparent uh, in her works. But I, I think she was oblivious to it. So and that might be. And then, of course, the whole thing about uh, human dignity. Uh, I, I think that human beings are more than individual. I think we are individual, but I think we're also social. Uh, and I think human creativity is something to be praised, which you see in the Gospels. Um, uh, you know, in the story of the talents, the man produces more you know so i think there are points of contact um for the strict orthodox randian maybe not because i mean it it just is kind of as narrow as a sectarian christian yeah can be
0: i mean i i I think of two things and then i've i've had some of my progressive friends on the show who would who would use the caricature and i think Pope Francis probably agrees with this character or employs it that that you have this atomistic Randian character. But mm-hmm. um, when I look at her characters, I don't actually see that. I see I see people that view individualism as a responsibility, um, and I also see uh, a young girl who watched her family be yeah. destroyed by Bolshevism. so And, and the whole society. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of rage against the machine going on there. No, and she's there. a
1: very angry woman in that regard. And I had a lot of theories about Rand, you know. Uh, I think she she had some, especially in um, We the Living, you see uh, the trauma uh, of this woman, uh, This is the closest thing to an autobiography. And her response to it is... Superman, you know, uh, much more in the uh, original text of *We the Living* than in the revised text of right. it. Right. Um, but little Alice was was brutalized. Yeah, there's some and Nietzsche, she brutalized there, yeah. others. Yeah, yeah no, that's Nishi is is there. Yeah. Uh, little Alice was brutalized, and like many people who are brutalized and abused, she she was that way with others. I mean, she was ruthless with others.
0: Let's, uh, we're running out of time, but uh, but I have to ask you about Pope Francis. Yes. I don't think he agrees with you on some of this market stuff.
1: Yeah, I think, um, uh, I'm grateful that the gift of uh, infallibility that is entrusted to the successor of St. Peter does not extend to the economic sphere, that, that the church, Itself does not profess to have competency in economics as such. That uh, the authority of the church is uh, in faith and morals. And when he speaks on that, you know, I, I don't have a problem with this. When he tries to kind of extrapolate that. And and I see in his writings a, a real tension. Because he he sees the poor. And he understands that in some sense... It has to be business that is going to pull people up out of poverty. But he just says that and then leaves it. And then when he makes empirical claims, such as he does in his encyclical on environmentalism, now this is not a a theological claim, it's an empirical claim, that the period of industrialization was the worst period in human history. When one looks at that period in terms of human betterment and well-being and access to food and longevity and all the rest of it, it actually was one of the most dramatically positive periods in human history for human beings. Um, Not to say that there wasn't um, uh, struggle and pain uh, on the part of humanity, but it's the contrast of that, that uh, struggle with the betterment that was occurring at the same time that brings the whole thing into relief. This, in other words, we more clearly see the evil of unchosen poverty because we see the potential of how people can live. And I think the Pope doesn't make those connections. And I'm free as a, as a faithful Catholic, and I'm a pretty traditional Catholic, I'm free to disagree with him on his economic analysis. There's a new encyclical coming out just tomorrow called Tutti Fratelli. It's taken from St. Francis. All, all brothers. We're all brothers. And again, I see these these themes, these mixtures of, of things where he he can only see economic success as exploitative. And yet, how are you going to help the poor if you don't have businesses to feed the poor. you know it's not, not just enough to wish that they have enough to eat. You have to know how to build factories that produce food. We will
0: leave that at that, but I want I want to I wrap up by giving people an opportunity to discover Acton if, if, if they don't know about you and and any hot new projects that you're excited about. How, first of all, how do we find acton and
1: acton.org? Uh, And right on there, there's just a ton of things. that You can go and look at our film productions or our conferences. Um, We have a a whole set of um, lectures that really give you the foundation of of what our ideas are, um, growing conferences, um, and that that people are going to... Go to Acton.org and you'll see it. You can watch um, Poverty Inc. I think it's on Amazon. Um, and again, we have a, a lot of those videos available on Acton.org. Okay. Well,
0: we have to whisk you out of the Death Star before. It was before a pleasure it,
1: visiting, really. Yeah. What a lovely environment. And you have some nice bourbons over there, I see.
0: Well, next time we <laughs> should dip into those as well. Later in the day. Thank Thank you, Father. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube, click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.